Well, we are going to return to Galatians. It's been quite some time. In fact, it's been quite some time since I've preached here. I was just telling somebody this morning, I don't think I've preached since February 5th. We haven't been in Galatians since mid-January. But we're actually going to spend very little time here, just kind of get back into the text and kind of our launch pad. Galatians 5, verse 22 But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Father, we are thankful that You liveth. (laughs) And yes, blessed be the rock of our salvation, Lord. We thank You for the rock, the Lord Jesus. Lord, we pray for our dear sisters and brethren on the other side of the world, that You'd hide them in the cleft of that rock in this season of religious foolishness and darkness and give them grace to stand and be faithful, Lord, and use them. Lord, use their resolute determination to honor Christ and, Lord, their joy and faithfulness. Father, I pray, Lord, these people are miserable and irritable in the daytime because they're doing what they don't have a heart to do. Lord, I pray the hearts of these young ladies to shine forth and be a manner of great conviction to them. Lord, use it for good. We're thankful for our brother, giving our brother Rashid the, the safe trip and able to share. And Lord, just thank you for the good report from our brother Dan. So encouraging, Father, what you're doing in that area of the world. We pray you continue to use our brethren, protect them. Now, Lord, we turn our attention to your word and we. We also want to remember Kevin, Lord, be with him, help him in this hour. Lord, we're thankful for brethren willing to serve and take him. And Lord, may he feel your presence and your help and your power and Lord, your word minister to his soul. Lord, we ask for that now as we open up your word and look in Galatians here at these fruits of the Spirit, Lord. Pray you'd help us. Pray your Spirit be in our midst, Lord. I don't. I don't know where this is all going. I pray, Lord, it would land on hearts that need to be uh, to, to see Your goodness, Lord. Those who are yet in their sins, that Your goodness might indeed lead them to repentance, Lord. We pray, Lord, be with us. Help us. Use Your Word for Your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a very there's a very popular saying, and um, most of you are probably aware of it. I don't even know where it originated from. It was some song or or not really sure. I I know I've frequently heard it stated in prisons many times. I'm sure Jeff has. Um anytime I've been involved in prison ministries it's been very frequent. And because of that though, I've kind of felt that uh you know, the amount of shallow religion that, that takes place in prisons, I, I've often thought it to be somewhat shallow statement. However, it is nonetheless a very true statement. And the statement is this, God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. That's very, those are very true words. In fact, you won't find a more accurate statement than that statement right there because that's exactly what Scripture teaches us. Strange that it would be regularly affirmed by those men who were incarcerated for, because of their badness, right? 
Even, you see, men, even in their most deplorable state, are brought to confess that God is good. And He's good all the time. All the time. Even when a brother wakes up and collapses, God is good. Even when your sinful, selfish choices put you behind bars, and change your life forever. God is good. No matter what our circumstances in life, this stands true. And this is what we want to talk about today. The Spirit's fruit of goodness. goodness. This is the six of nine fruits that we're seeking to dwell upon as we go through making our way towards uh, the end of this Galatian letter. Uh, number six of nine fruits there listed in chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. And our sister Cheryl did us uh, gave us the privilege of being able to keep track there on the wall. You see where we're at in, uh, in our trek through the fruits there. Um, but the fruit of the Spirit is goodness. Paul is speaking about fruit. Fruit that is manifest or produced in the life of a Christian. Not by the Christian alone, mind you. But the Spirit that dwells in the Christian as I've been saying throughout the series, this is the Spirit's fruit. It's not our fruit. This is what the Spirit produces through us. It's His fruit. So we always want to trace the fruit back to God Himself. And there we will discover the clearest definition and understanding of what this fruit truly looks like. So goodness. What is goodness? Our last study in Galatians, we were looking at we're looking at kindness. And maybe you recall me pointing out there's a bit of an overlap between goodness and kindness. Kindness we defined as, as a gracious attitude of heart that's demonstrated in gracious acts of good towards others. It's, it's a quality of being generous, thoughtful, friendly. And yes, there are overtones of goodness in that definition. However, goodness is more of a quality of being morally good or virtuous. The Old Testament word for goodness is tov. It shows up 481 times in Scripture. Only six times we find it translated goodness in our Bibles, but 298 times good. It's also translated better and best. It is that which is most favorable, most pleasing to God. That which is approved by Him as right. You recall the opening pages of the Bible. In Genesis, we're given a descriptive, a description of God's creative work in the first six days in the opening chapters. We find throughout that narrative, God Himself assessing His own creative work and calling it good. And He saw that it was good. And he saw that it was good. And he saw that it was good. And we get to the end of the sixth day and the Lord's final assessment is that it's very good. Very good. So right out of the gate of God's recorded Word, He establishes His creative work as good. God is the definer of good and goodness, not us. Goodness is what He approves. It's what He considers is right and pleasant. And that's very important to keep in mind. Because a guy on the street might call something altogether different and good that God would say is not good at all. 
God establishes what's good, but not only does God establish the definition of good, God Himself is good. I mean, the Psalms are just <laughs> covered with this, right? Psalm 25, 8, we sing it. Good and upright is the Lord. David in Psalm 38, or 34, 8 bids us to taste. And if we taste God, what will we find out? We will find out that He indeed is good. And this is an oft-repeated refrain throughout the Psalms. Psalm 106, 01. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Why? For He is good. Psalm 54, 6. I will give thanks to Your name, O Lord, for it is good. Psalm 69, 16. Answer me, O Lord, for Your steadfast love is good. Psalm 86.5, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving. Psalm 100, verse 25, For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 103.5, Blessed is the Lord who satisfies you with good. Can you say that this morning? God satisfied you with good? Absolutely. Psalm 119.68, You are good and do good. What is that's so true? Zechariah nine seventeen. For how great is his goodness, and how great is his beauty. John ten eleven. I am the good shepherd. Jesus says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is just the overwhelming testimony of Scripture. God is good. David rejoicingly states this in, in, in Psalm 31, 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you. David speaks of God storing up goodness. It's like he's storing up goodness for those who fear Him and take refuge in Him. I mean, what a word picture that. That's something to think upon. God's storing up goodness for me. As I continue to demonstrate I fear Him, as I continue to demonstrate I trust Him, as I continue to, for, to make Him my refuge, God is storing up goodness. Yes, He's sprinkling some out here and there, but He's also storing some for later. Two years ago, I, I did a message on the goodness of God. That message flowed out of the abundant goodness that David's speaking of here in Psalm 31. Visiting my own household and saving four of my children and my son-in-law in a span of only 18 months. And so I read that psalm. <laughs> oh, how abundant is your goodness which you stored up for me. Yes, amen. It's like, the, it's like the Lord had a large wagon just filled with riches, kind of shoved into the corner of his storehouse, just waiting to open the door and unroll it. And he did. Listen, brethren, God has a storehouse of blessing, of goodness, that he's waiting to pour out on you in your life. A storehouse of goodness that he's promising to lavish upon Christians, those who follow, those who make him their refuge. All in due time, right? It's all in due time, his perfect timing. Yes, he's already done so in, in, in the most uh, ultimate fashion in giving you the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. 
But part of that gift is being brought into the storehouse of just continued blessings of God, showering you with His goodness, His favor, spiritual riches untold. It is true. We already mentioned it. James brought up Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow you, Christian, all the days of your life. This is the lot promised to God's children over and over. Psalm 34, those who seek the Lord lack what? No good thing. What a promise. Psalm 84, 11, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing will He withhold from those who walk uprightly. Sadly, however, sin is ever a distorter of that which is true. Sin distorts God's goodness. Distorts it in two opposite extremes, really. It imagines God to be some naive old man like Santa, you know, a jolly old soul who just can't help but dish out goodness to people. Just, you know, it, just about to everyone, just indiscriminately. I'm sure he makes distinctions of those who are naughty and nice, but, but you see, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day because God's just, you know, dripping with so much goodness. He just can't bring himself to actually bring, to, to actually bring himself to act upon any of his threats. That's a God, a lot, that's very much the God of America. You see, sin seeks to redefine good, exchanging its moral value for just blind, amoral benevolence, just giving. And that's exactly what happened in the garden. Satan redefined what was good. It was no longer good to obey God. It was no longer good to do what was right and pleasing in the sight of God. No, Satan defined good as that which is most pleasing to you, not God. Satan argued that the tree that God forbid Adam and Eve to eat from was actually good to eat from. That God was actually not good in keeping them from it. And so we're told when the woman saw that the food was good to eat, that was it. Game over. Mankind fell by the devil redefining good. And he's been deceiving human beings ever since. The second way sin distorts God and His goodness is by painting God to be some angry, obstinate, stoic, kind of sovereign, kind of detached from, from the, His created world, who's kind of def- devoid, he's void of feelings and affections from His creation. could really care less about those who He created in His own image. Therefore, we need to do something noteworthy or something. we need to achieve something to get His attention, to please Him. That describes every false religion. It describes every religion except Christianity. Demonic religion is built upon a foundation of placating an angry God through rituals and rhetoric. See it all over the place. And it's still fresh in my mind and, and Nepal, being in Nepal, this dead, hopeless, superstitious religion. I mean, John took us to that temple there. That's, I ended up finding out it's the largest temple in the world. I didn't know that. Hindu temple in the world right next to the airport. And 
where people are quickly transported and burned after they're pronounced dead, you hope. I mean, it's, I mean, right after you're pronounced dead. And most of you saw some of those photos Wednesday, but those photos still fall short of just capturing the, the, the somber darkness and just empty expressions that were there. I mean, the smell of burning flesh and hopeless despair of the priest just rattling off these lifeless mantras and, and just relatives void of emotion. Never quite saw something like that. Burning their loved ones right in front of them and trusting it was some means of spiritual blessing. All that just reeked of just being so hollow and empty and hopeless. No tears, no smiles, just blank stares, no joy when they make their offering to their God or their gods. They perform their religious duties to these supposed kings of karma. Not, not, no reality. Just driven by fearful superstition. Nothing driven. Nothing driven by the goodness of God. Only fear. Now, now you, you contrast that with our, our dear precious sister Miley. This Christ-loving rock crusher in the remote mountains of Nowhereville in Nepal who's humbly and faithfully serving the Lord, making gravel by hand, caring for her crippled 17-year-old son alone and does it with just joy beaming off her face. <laughs> Why? How? How does she possess such joy when all these countless others are just faces of just, just stares of hopelessness, hopeless despair? Well, one reason, and one reason alone, she sees the goodness of God. That's it. They can't see it. They're all blind to the goodness of God. They're blinded by these karma kings ready to strike out and curse them if they mess up on the ritual. They don't do things right. For not wearing the dot on the head or eating the cow or you, you name it. For all manner of nonsense. Nonsense built on a foundation that is absolutely void of the goodness of God. That's true of all false religion. But you know what the scary thing is? Even in Christianity, we can be guilty of distorting the goodness of God. Oh, brethren, we don't want to falsely represent the living God as some cosmic killjoy who, whose de decrees simply make Him void of emotion and feeling, not passionate about His people, not passionate about His will being carried out through His people. That kind of representation of God comes from the same devils that built Hinduism. You see, all that changes. All that changes when you come face to face with the goodness of the true and living God. God's goodness. Turn with me to, to Exodus 33. I, I know I've shown you this before, but it's worth looking at again. This, this scene reveals something very important, very fundamental to Christianity, to this world, and God Himself. Chapter 33 begins with this conversation between God and Moses. And the Lord telling Moses to leave Sinai with the people of Israel and go to the promised land. But he was not going to join them. He was not going to go with them. 
because the people are stiff-necked and rebellious. And Moses reasons that, Lord, if indeed I've found favor in your sight, prove it by going with me, going with us, and, and directing me in the way. And the Lord responds in verse 17, The Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And now look how Moses responds. I mean, he, he wants more. It's not enough for the Lord to go with them. He wants to know His God. He wants to, he wants to be near Him. He wants Him to be real to Him. He, he, wants, he wants that which is going to serve to help Him, enable Him to, to, to perform the task that the Lord has laid upon Him. He was leading million, over a million people. <laughs> what, a, what a load to bear. And so in verse 18, Moses says, please, Lord, please show me Your glory. And this is really a remarkable request. <laughs> because it's not as if Moses had not seen God's glory. I mean, this, this, this guy is, this, we're talking about the guy who first encounters God with a burning bush. Now, that's pretty startling. We've got some nice you know, plants out here and trees been planted. You imagine walking out this door and one of those rose bushes, I don't know if that's a rose bush, but one of those bushes right there just starts glowing and God starts talking. And that's what Moses encountered. This is the man who saw the Lord take his staff, throw it to the ground, turns into a snake, and eats two more snakes. I mean, this is a, this is a man who witnessed God turn wa- the rivers, water, into blood. He witnessed God rain down just miracle after miracle after miracle, eventually overthrow the Egyptian empire, the Egyptian empire. This is a man who saw God split the sea in half to preserve all Israel, let them through, and then drown the Egyptian army. He saw God feed millions with bread from heaven. I think one of the kids in Sunday school said they were trying to say manna and it sounded like banana bread from heaven. (laughs) That would have been delightful, I'm sure. But God feeding him with manna from heaven. And here we find the same Moses. Lord, please show me your glory. You see, miracles will never satisfy fallen humans. We need more. We, we need God Himself. Israel's proof of this. They saw many, plenty of wonders. Plenty of shock and awe moments. Astounding miracles. But it did not produce obedience. It didn't change them from within. There was no real... It didn't produce any real joy. Moses knew what he was asking when he said, Lord, show me your glory. Brethren, that's the cry of every Christian. And listen to the Lord's response. In verse 19, he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. What a statement. And will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I'll take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face 
shall not be seen. In Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord passed before him. All of God's goodness, that's what passed before Moses. And he proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. All these things are expressions of God's goodness. All these, all these are collectively expressions of His goodness. Mercy, grace, slowness to anger, abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness, forgiving iniquity. All of it is God's goodness demonstrated. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation? And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. God grants Moses his request and it results in face-to-the-ground worship. Again, the request in verse 18, please show me your glory. What does God show him? All his goodness. You want to see my glory, Moses? I'm going to do a drive-by of all my goodness and proclaim my glorious name to you. But here's the deal, Moses. It's too much for you to take. You can't see it. You can't take in all of my goodness. In fact, it would completely disintegrate you if you saw it. Moses, you wouldn't survive such an encounter. So this is what I'm going to do. You see that rock over there? You're going to stand there in the cleft of it. I'm going to put my hand over you. I'm going to pass by. You'll see the backside of me. Then I'll take my hand away. You'll see my goodness. But you can't see everything. can't see it all. can't handle all my goodness, Moses. But God here equates His glory to the expression of His goodness. A goodness that completely transforms those who see it. When Moses saw it, when Moses saw this, he was never the same. Look at verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, he came down from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken, all that the Lord had spoken with him at Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. And now we get this little this explanatory paragraph uh, of just a little window into what the life of Moses was going forward. He says there in verse 34, whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went to speak with him. So this would seem to indicate that Moses' face shined throughout his pilgrimage whenever he met with God in the tent. 
And his, his face was so transformed in that meeting, that encounter, that it made the people afraid. So Moses covered his face with a veil because the people couldn't handle it. And Paul indicates in 2 Corinthians 3 that that veil that prevented them from seeing the glow of God's goodness continues to cover the eyes of the Jewish people since. Their eyes are blind to God's goodness. You see, brethren, all of the Old Testament was written for our instruction. Moses' face shining as a result of a direct encounter with God, God's goodness, is intended to instruct us new covenant believers in Christ. We, like Moses, are to shine forth the glory of God's goodness to this world. What an amazing thing, brother, that you and I, fallen creatures, could be projectors of God's glorious goodness. It's wonderful. But brethren, oh, that we would spend time in the tent. Moses wasn't shining unless he went to the tent. You've got to go to the tent to have something to shine forth, you see. You don't get this, glo- this projecting glory that comes from God, this fruit of the Spirit of goodness. It isn't going to shine forth from you by playing video games. Not going to happen. You don't get this glory by twiddling your thumbs and browsing the internet. You don't get it by piddling away your time on worthless things and carnal pleasures. You don't get it by being self-absorbed and living an aimless life. By setting your mind on everything around you that's perishing. You only get it when you take the time and spend the time in the tent where the glory is ready to meet you, Christian. Where it bursts forth in waves of wonder as you behold Christ's face. We just sang it. And when you behold His face, all the things of this earth grow strangely dim, don't they? Why? Because God's goodness is just coming in waves, causing your face, causing your person to radiate and shine with beams of transforming power that you cannot hide. It just jumps off your face and it affects people. You know why your relatives hate you? Or hate, your, hate your gospel? Don't want to talk to you? Get riled up when you share the gospel with them? Because they're afraid. Just like these people. They're afraid of that glory. They're afraid of the goodness of God. You know what I discovered in Nepal? Sadly, the same thing I've discovered here and other places. Young, godly, Christ-loving, sold-out daughters of Zion waiting for worthy men to marry them. And this thing's just been a growing burden to me. Where are the young men sold out for Jesus Christ? Men who are spiritually worthy and ready to lead such women. I ask you, where are they? we got plenty who will talk Christianity, talk doctrine, talk about their besetting. Oh, they like to talk about their besetting sins. 
talk about their want to be married, but where's the glory? Where is the transforming power? Where's the shine? Where's the goodness of God taking root in a manner that fits them ready to, to lead a wife? Tell you what, man, you don't get there by staring at Mario. You don't. You get there gazing at the stupendous, breathtaking, good God in all His glory. And it's revealed to us in His Word. You've got to be in the Word. You've got to spend the Word. You've got to feed on the Word. You've got to be in it. You've got to spend time with this God. And saving us, he's, he's placed us in the cleft of the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ, the rock of ages. Not having to gaze at His backside. No, we, we're in the new covenant. We, we, we by grace can behold Him face to face. And it's in the beholding of face to face, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3, when we turn from the Lord, the veil is removed. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another as we bask and take in the goodness of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Yes, this is a pastoral tangent that I'm on, but very much related to God's goodness. It is. And our response to His goodness See, if our mind and our hearts are saturated with the world, we're not seeing the goodness of God. We got no shine. We got nothing but the world, the muck and the mire of this world. And listen, we got thousands of people perishing daily. We we take so much for granted. We do. Thousands of people dying daily, entering into a hopeless eternity of immense suffering and punishment. Who live their whole lives, some, completely ignorant of Jesus Christ. Completely. Meanwhile, we we got professing Christians, men who occupy hours of their time trying to reach level 40 in a world that's not even real. It's not even real. Brethren, we've been called to live in reality, not fantasy. Instead of using up valuable time and energy trying to make it to level 53, get your face and eyes set on Isaiah 53 and behold your Savior who is crushed for all your wayward iniquities and bruised for all your transgressions. Put down the joystick, lay aside the phone, jump into the tent and dwell upon this One who poured out His soul unto death to give you eternal life and so much more. Don't squander it. Don't squander it pursuing digital power-ups and imaginary enemies. There are real enemies to fight. Enemies that have some, some of you logged to sleep playing when there's real war to wage. Fierce forces to conquer. Precious ground to be gained and advancements to be made. Where are the men who will wage such warfare? Who will advance the flag that says Jesus reigns? I'll tell you where they're at. They're in the tent. 
That glorious tent of meeting, that's where it all starts. That's how it's maintained. Meeting with the great commander-in-chief one-on-one. And they come out of that tent ready, equipped with the radiance of of Christ's goodness beaming off their face, ready to take on a world that opposes them. And let me tell you something, there's not any enemy that can stand up to that. Not any. God, help us. God forbid that we spend more time with Mario than, than our Lord and Savior who died for us and ever lives to make intercession for us. And listen, don't think that I'm suggesting we don't have for a moment that we don't have such men in this room dwelling in the tent. We do, and I praise God for you. But God, give us more. (laughs) Give us more. Give us an army of Christ, of, of... uh, tent-loving Christ lovers who are, who are ready to serve, ready to lay down their life for the Christ and His Gospel, who are ready to lead women and, and take back ground that the devil has taken that belongs to Jesus alone, no matter the cost. You know, I'm just talking video games. We could, we, we could, we could substitute anything. You know what your thing is. And listen, I'm not just making some legalistic statement. I've played video games with my kids. But what do we do? How, how are we occupying our time regularly? Steve Lawson says, the goodness of God is the epicenter of His divine glory. I like that. I mean, Steve Lawson, I found him to be a, a master of one-liners. <laughs> and brethren, he reveals it to us to dirty, rotten, no-good sinners, not to disintegrate them, and certainly not to, to render them aimless and, and, and be preoccupied with pointlessness. No, he, he reveals His goodness to win them and make them shine. This is what the fruit of the Spirit does. It, it shines, it radiates. His goodness transforms His goodness. His goodness makes people radiant. This is what Jeremiah says. Listen to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, 11 and 12. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob. He has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. For they shall come, those who he rescues, they shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord. Radiant over the goodness of the Lord. Christian, are you radiant over God's goodness? You see, the Moses encounter is not the only time we see God's glory connected with, with His goodness. Let's turn, turn, if you would, please, to, to 2 Chronicles 7. Here, here in, that, in that passage, we have, we have Solomon just finishing up his prayer at the dedication of this, this newly built temple. And God comes down in most wonderful and glorious fashion, displaying His glory. This is just an awe-filled event. And notice the response of the people. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1. As Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, 
for His steadfast love endures forever. Again, what's the expressed reality realized in the revelation of God's glory? His goodness. First thing out of their mouth. For He is good. And brethren, we as Christians, as His people, are to bear that goodness in this world. A goodness that transforms those who encounter it. A goodness that has a divine glow upon it. Luke tells us in real summary fashion, Jesus went about doing good. That's what we're called to, brethren. Good. And I trust we will get there eventually. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Bear the fruit of God's goodness to this backward, God-defying, lost and dying world. Good people are to be rich in goodness. That's us. That's our calling. You want to know what you should be doing, what God's will is? That you do good. Do good to the household of faith and to everyone. That's His calling for us. If you remember my last message when we were in Acts 11, I noted that Barnabas was called by the inspired writer Luke, a good man. And that obviously is a true statement. But people tend to have a hard time reconciling that statement, that designation, with passages like Romans 3.10, where no one does good, not even one. Or words of Jesus recorded in Mark 10.18 and Luke 18.19, 18.19, where Jesus says, why do you call me good? There, there's no one good except God. You add statements, and you add to that statements like Jeremiah 17.9, where he says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And Paul's wretched man comment, and you just add up all these statements in Scripture, this collection of biblical passages, and it clearly indicates that man is not good. And he's incapable of good. And you know what? That's true. But we need to understand that all of those statements are speaking to natural man apart from God. There's no, not one person who does good or is good outside of regeneration. Left in our trespasses and sins, even good, the good that fallen creatures do, fall short of being good in the sight of God because they lack the goodness of God driving the good. It's not the source of it. It's not the reason. It's not the motive. In other words, true good cannot be accomplished or acknowledged where true good is not the source. That's really what Jesus was saying to the rich young ruler. That statement, no one's good except God alone, that statement was made intending to direct the rich man's mind to the fact that Jesus, the Jesus standing before him was God, deity. If you're going to call me good teacher, in other words, if you're going to call me good teacher, are you prepared to acknowledge me as the source of all good? That's what he's throwing back at the guy. James 1.17, right? Every good gift. Every good gift. And every perfect gift comes from above. 
coming down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. There's no good apart from God. David says as much in Psalm 16 too, but I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. There it is, plain as day. There's no good apart from God. But what's the implication of that statement? I do have good with God. Lord, I do have good with you. I I do have good attached to you, united to you, reconciled to you. Christians can be said to be good people because that which is good, God, dwells in them. That's the only reason they can be called good. As I mentioned in Romans 15, 14, Paul affirms the goodness that dwells in God's people, telling the Romans, you are full of goodness. (laughs) If Paul hadn't said it, we'd be like, oh, Paul, I don't know about that. But, But the reason Barnabas, or you or I, any Christian can be called good. It's because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. That, that's why. Making us good and capable of doing good. Capable of producing this fruit, goodness. William Tyndale says, God's goodness is the root of all goodness. And our goodness, if we have any, springs from His goodness. I like that. Brethren, what a thing to say and to experience, right? That I have, I have goodness of God that springs forth from me. <laughs> That's true. The very, at, a very attribute of the living God flowing through us. Us fallen creatures. To whatever degree it flows, it has everything to do, actually, that degree has everything to do with our time in the tent. Time spent dwelling on this good and magnificent God, to whatever degree His goodness flows through us, it's just really, you think about it, it's incredible. And so, because God's the source and not man, the Lord specifically orders events and circumstances in our lives to demonstrate that, right? Paul, that's why Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. God is working and weaving and scripting every chapter, every page, every sentence, every word of your life to ultimately reveal His goodness to you and demonstrate His goodness through you to others all while conforming you to the image of His Son. It's quite wonderful. It's actually the best thing that can actually happen to us. That's the best good, to be made like Jesus. In the words of Paul, oh, the riches, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. That He would demonstrate and shine forth His own goodness through feeble Broken vessels like you and I. Jars of clay, Paul calls us. It's amazing. Barnabas, you see, was a good man because he had a benevolent heart that God had given him. They called him the son of encouragement. You remember, remember when, they first, when Barnabas first, we first encountered Barnabas in the book of Acts, he's, given, he's selling his land, laying the proceeds at the apostles' feet. Why? To help 
to, to give, to provide the needs in the church. He was, a, he was a giving man. He was an encourager. He was a son of encouragement. That's why he was good. He was like God. I was going to have us turn to Psalm 104 for the sake of time. I'm not going to do that. But just another passage. Just The whole passage is God's goodness. Just demonstrated and pouring out His faithfulness to this world. I mean, the just and unjust. God is just, He rains down, right? He's faithful. You wake up in the morning, there's rain on the ground. For me, also for the wicked guy, it was, was, it was just blaspheming God yesterday. He's careful, he's, he takes care of all the animals, all of His creation. Just the benevolence of God. That's how God expresses His goodness in His patience, which is, supposed, which is intended to lead people to repentance. His patience, His faithfulness to, to us, to His creation. All these demonstrations of His kindness. How are you expressing God's goodness in your life? He's deposited in you for that reason, you know. For Miley, it's the mundane everyday rigorous labor of turning stones into gravel and caring for her now adult son who's 100% dependent upon her and doing it all with radiant joy. Everything about her, everything about her life speaks depression and despair in the eyes of this world. Everything. Her response to God's goodness is just inexplicable to the fallen mind. But for eyes that have been opened to behold this good God, they see Him putting on display the abundant goodness of His glory. You see, in God's economy, He chooses the things that are low and despised in the world. Even Even the things that are not, I like that. The things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that appear to be are. Through the manifestation of His goodness. That's how He does this. Is your life manifesting God's goodness? Is that what people see in your life? I came back here challenged by that woman's life. Uh, Friday morning I was attending one of the services at Community Spring Conference and Dean Olive preached a message on the widow with the two mites. And it reminded me of Miley. You know, we're sitting there in her living room floor. Didn't have furniture. We're sitting there in the living room floor and we're we're eating the dinner she had made us. She was quite happy to have us as guests. Who knows? I mean, the cost of that meal for her was, I'm I'm sure, quite a bit. And uh, there we were eating. She's beaming with a smile. And as we ate, and like I said, who knows what percentage of her work's wages went into that meal. But... We get done, we're ready to leave, and, and she, she hands me a bottle to give to John. And uh, in the bottle was honey that she collected herself. And I just thought, wow, I mean, because I, I like honey. So I'm pretty, pretty, pretty aware of the prices in the U.S. It's like gold. I can't imagine what the equivalent is there. But she cheerfully gives it away. Thrilled to do so. What was that with the goodness of God shining through her? A vessel empty of a lot of things this world affords, but just full to the rim of the goodness of God, ready to just pour out. 
pour out more. Brethren, somewhere it says, to much has been given, much shall be required. Miley's been given very little, but she's yielding much in return. I ask myself, what about me? What about you? What about us? You know what I love about her story, but at the same time, it's convicting to me. There's no room for excuses. Well, if I only had... No, that doesn't work. Yeah, but if I didn't have this in my life, all those just crumble to pieces when you enter the picture of her life. And so I ask, what, what more can we do with what God has given us? Oh, there's a whole lot of resources here, spiritual and physical. With the great volume of goodness that the Lord has showered upon us, what more can we do to a world that desperately needs what we have? I'm sitting there watching human beings burning. And relatives standing by just emotionless. As ashes of this woman just take wind and this grip with a sense that could be me. I could be born and I could have been born into this family, into this land, and steeped into this religion and not know any different. I could be one of them, but I'm not. Praise God. Now, obviously, being an American doesn't make you a Christian. But brethren, it does make us more accountable. Despite where our country is, despite all of its rebellion, all the light it's rejected, there's still so much light here, so much gospel access, and so much gospel permeation, just the resources and the light that we have. And that really comes to light when, you come, when you're standing on the other side of the world. But what are we to do with such blessings? With such bestowals of God's goodness heaped upon us? Hoard it up? Keep the honey? Keep it safe? Secure it so the government and the thieves don't get it or get our money out because the banks are, are, are failing and dig a hole in the backyard to keep it all safe? Should we pontificate on the finer points of our reformed doctrine? John Piper's words come to my mind. Don't, I mean, ring throughout my experience there. Don't waste your life. Oh, brethren, I don't want to waste my life. I don't want you to waste your life. How is it one way not to do that? How? Live like God and doing good. Doing good. We don't need a, a great exercise of education or a list of things to know how to do good, right? You know how to do good. You know how to love your neighbor as yourself. This subject of God's goodness, I, I mean, it's 
I'm just scratching the surface here. I, I could have, you could take this down many paths. I mean, God has just showered us with so many good gifts of salvation, of grace, of joy, of, of, of strength, of wisdom, of faith. I mean, I mean, I think about that, that song. He giveth and giveth and giveth again. That's, that's, that's what been my testimony. God's given so much. We need to be like Him, like we heard in the first hour of Ezekiel 34, to seek the lost, right? That's doing good. To bring back the strayed, that's doing good. To strengthen the weak among us, that's doing good. That's just like the shepherd. God, help us to demonstrate His goodness in a world that really needs it. Father, we are thankful. Oh, Lord, thank You for shining the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ into our lives. Lord, it's a great blessing, privilege. Thank You. We want to be thankful. We want to be grateful. But Lord, we realize it makes us accountable. And Lord, we want to be good stewards with every aspect of every blessing that comes down from above and into our lives. Lord, help us. Lord, we're weak. Lord, You you use the illustration of sheep, Lord. They're not the smartest creatures. Lord, they easily go astray. They're easily, they're, Lord, they easily find themselves in trouble. So, Lord, help us as Your sheep. Give us grace. Lord, we want to be, be beacons of light. We want our faces to radiate of the goodness of the living God. Lord, as You're writing the script, the chapter, the next chapter, the next paragraph of our life, the next sentences, Lord, would You... Would you do whatever you would to make this a reality in our lives individually and as a church that we would beam forth the goodness of the living God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.